Good morning and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. State governments and state universities are under tremendous financial pressures, causing presidents in the most recent ACE survey of college presidents that they are concerned about the long-term financial viability of their school now is the number two concern in the COVID-19 area behind uh, student, faculty, and staff mental health. My guest today is Dr. James Johnson. Most recently, Jim was president of the University of Alaska system from 2015 to 2020, where he led the system through a historically challenging period marked by severe cuts in state funding, declining enrollment, and of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. He was a visiting scholar at the Center for Studies in Higher Education at the University of California, Berkeley, and has completed specialized training in negotiation and leadership at Harvard and finance at Northwestern, as well as his EDD from Penn. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Karen. Appreciate it. Nice to so, be here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for those of us who are read a lot about higher education, Alaska was in the news quite a bit in the last 18 months over these financial challenges. Walk us through uh, first what constitutes the Alaska system, and then also what some of those financial challenges were. Yeah, um, you know, often Alaska is uh, prominent because of its size. You know, it's the largest state in the country by far, uh, two and a half size the times of Texas, and and that matters <laughs> um, when it comes to delivering uh, higher education. Uh, if you were to transpose Alaska onto the lower 48 states, Alaska touches the Atlantic Ocean, it touches the Pacific Ocean. And the system began in 1915, well before statehood. Statehood didn't occur until 1959. But uh, getting forming up a university system was actually part of the pitch for statehood uh, because it was a territory back then. And, and folks thought, gosh, if we have a university and we have this and we have that, right. then the folks in Congress will say, okay, you can be, you can be a state. Uh, so going back to 1915, an act of uh, Congress um, uh, created the Alaska Agricultural College and School of Mines uh, in Fairbanks. It didn't open until 1922 when six students uh, showed up on the campus, and, but it was, uh, it was organized under the Morrill Act. Uh, so it got some land. Uh, I'll talk about that a little, in a little bit. It's, it's the land-grant university without the land. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it started out then. And fast forward uh, 1935, it became the University of Alaska, again, to try to pump up this notion of pride and credibility and gravitas for purposes of statehood. And then um, up to now, where you have 13 campuses, three universities, one doctoral research university, one compre comprehensive university in Anchorage that's the biggest. And then in Juneau, a smaller comprehensive university, and then uh, all these community campuses that stretch out across the state. Uh, half of the campuses are inaccessible by land. Wow. Uh, and wow. 1,300 miles from the southernmost to the northernmost. So that's basically the distance from, for those of you uh, watching, we're familiar with West Coast distances, it's the distance from San Diego to Seattle. Uh, wow. So major challenge there in terms of, uh, of geography. Um, it, its research uh, is uh, distinguished by its location. Uh, of course, uh, number one uh, research university on the planet when it comes to Arctic fill in the blank. 
because Fairbanks is uh, very close to the Arctic and uh, a lot of the research has to do with climate uh, and uh, the North uh, Sea and oceanography and space physics and volcanology, seismology, uh, the biggest earthquakes uh, that have occurred in the United States over the last hundred years had their epicenters in Alaska. So it's a it's a great place to study certain kinds of, of things. Uh, and and the, what, is, what is volcanology? I, I don't know what that volcanoes. is. Volcanoes. Oh, volcanoes. Okay. Yeah. Right. The Aleutian chain. Something else. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, the Aleutian chain is, is very active. Yeah. Uh, and that, of course, is highly correlated with seismology because there's a big, the big northern plate is, uh, you know, uh, along that, that arc uh, of the north. So today, uh, the budget is about $800 million, about 25,000 students. Um, and uh, I mentioned the land, we got 110,000 acres under the Morrill Act should have gotten 500,000 acres. Uh, so that's a continuing struggle, but I think we, we can talk about that a little bit um, later. 92% of the higher education that happens in Alaska happens at the University of Alaska. Uh, so it's, it's the big uh, player uh, here. It's uh, governed by a board of regents it's a single entity. So even though there are all these different community campuses and three different universities, it's one financial entity, one legal entity. Uh, so uh, while, and that creates a tension that we can talk about yeah. uh, because from a decision-making standpoint, it's one from, uh, from a, an accreditation standpoint, it's three. Uh, and that creates an issue here as it does in many state university systems across the country, where the governance is, is set up under a constitution or statute with a board of regents or a coordinating board. Uh, and then you've got accreditors out here uh, who uh, frankly don't recognize systems uh, very uh, clearly. Uh, and, and that can set up some, some issues. And we certainly bumped into that as we were trying to figure out options for dealing with the budget cut that you, you mentioned a moment ago in your Interesting, interesting. Mm -hmm. But we can, we can talk more about. Yeah, that. let's let's go. Let's dive into the budget a little bit. Let's talk about you know how Alaska traditionally makes its money, its different yeah. revenue streams and other. Well, starting, yeah, starting in 1974, it was making its money from oil and gas, um, primarily oil. Uh, there's an 800 mile long pipeline that runs from uh, uh, Prudhoe Bay down to Valdez, and so that's been the primary revenue source uh, for the last 40 or so years. Uh, Alaska is a boom and bust natural resource economy. So first it was the Russians coming in and taking furs. Uh, then it's, you know, fish, uh, timber, gold. Uh, actually, uh, timber is not an active uh, part of the economy anymore, but gold is big. Zinc is very big. Oil still is big, uh, though less uh, than what it was. Uh, and uh, so those are the primary revenue uh, sources to the state. The state did establish a permanent fund uh, back in the 70s and 25% of the revenue that comes off of oil goes into this endowment. And now it has become the single largest funder of state government, wow. uh, the earnings off of that investment fund. Uh, so a lot of foresight uh, by, the, by the founders. Uh, a challenge though is, uh, and it sets up a competition now and, and it's one that the university has really had to struggle with is between the permanent fund dividend that is paid out to Alaskans each year versus funding for things like higher education, healthcare, et cetera, K-12 education. So the single, big, the single biggest expenditure of state government right now in Alaska is a dividend that is paid out to Alaskans. 
<clears throat> right, right. Yeah. Okay. So it's been a challenge for the state here recently. Uh, even pre-COVID, oil prices were down. Uh, and so that really was putting a constraint on revenues to the state. Uh, and of course, with COVID, demand for oil because economic activity was declining, airlines, shipping, et cetera. Uh, so it really put a, a crimp on, on revenues for the state. And that has resulted in very severe uh, cuts to the budget. The university's budget's been cut continuously since 2015. Uh, the peak budget was 2014. Uh, and so just managing those reductions <clears throat> has been extremely difficult. Uh, the most difficult year really was last year when in February of 2019, new governor Mike Dunleavy proposed a 41% cut in the state appropriation to the university. And that wouldn't be a big deal if the university's dependence on the state were just five or 10%, as is the case in many parts of the country. Right. Ours is 40%. Wow. And so that was, that was a big, big whack. Uh, now we were able to successfully advocate through the legislative session to uh, reinstate the budget. We were largely successful in doing that. And then on June 28th, just three days prior to the beginning of the fiscal year, the governor uh, vetoed uh, all the money that the legislature had reinstated in the budget, taking it all the way back uh, to his 41% cut. And then we were under that cut for six weeks. Uh, I mean, people we were able to negotiate our way out of it, but uh, I think a lot of people even here in Alaska went through it, forget that that cut was in effect for six weeks. Uh, so we, you know, not only were uh, pushing hard to uh, fight the cut, um, I was also negotiating directly with the governor to mitigate the effects of the cut. And we eventually got an agreement with him to uh, bring down the, the reduction, um, but also doing the contingency planning for what are we gonna do? How are we gonna reduce right. uh, here? And, uh, and one of the big constraints uh, around the reduction was uh, the notice periods, uh, the requirements for program reviews and no long notice periods uh, for making needed quick reductions. So our board declared financial exigency uh, and uh, we started developing plans to dramatically reduce uh, the number of academic units, uh, the uh, number of faculty, the number of staff. Uh, we explored a single accreditation as opposed to three accreditations, other means to try to uh, reduce the overall cost structure. Right. Uh, and at the same time, we really thought that there were, and I think there still are, positive opportunities for a more seamless student experience. Our, our students uh, really want to be able to move across our university system and take courses um, that are more convenient for them. Uh, and of course, post-COVID, that's really opened up. Uh, so how do we become more of a system academically and administratively um, too? And I, so trying to see a, a little bit of silver lining in a, in a pretty uh, difficult cloud. So we're trying to handle all that at the same time. Uh, and once we did get the agreement with the governor on August 13th, that halved the cut, so from 41% to about 21%, and then spread it out over three years. So we had a, a, a glide path. So the reductions could be uh, planned uh, anyway. Uh, not perfect scenario by any stretch, but frankly, a whole lot better 
than the 41%. So the board withdrew the declaration of fiscal exigency and then, uh, then we asked the campuses to come up with the money. Uh, how are you going to reduce? And that work, uh, since I left the university in July, uh, is continuing. They're not, uh, UA I don't think is close yet to uh, developing the, the clear plan for making those reductions. Uh, but um, you know they're working hard at it. Then of course, all of this happens in a political context. Uh, we uh, have, uh, I mentioned that permanent fund dividend and uh, the legislature's uh, set amount for the dividend is less than the statute calls for and the governor wants. So there was a reaction uh, by the voters during the primaries this year. And so a number of the uh, legislators, particularly Republican legislators who worked with uh, Democratic legislators to uh, fashion that reduced dividend to Alaska citizens were voted out uh, during the primary. So it may well be that the, the leg we don't know yet because of course November 3rd hasn't happened yet, but it may be that the legislature shifts even further in a fiscally conservative direction uh, this year, which will uh, reinforce, if you will, the constraint uh, right. on the university. And I, I guess the last point I'd like to make here, and, and it's a really important point, <clears throat> uh, is size matters. And our geography is huge, of course, which is a, a big factor, but we're relatively small. I mean, you, the whole University of Alaska system is a middle-sized university uh, around the rest of the country. And what that means is that we have many fewer degrees of freedom uh, for, for how to adapt and respond. You know, if I were to compare us to, you know, the Cal State system or the SUNY system or some of the other big systems, yes, they're under pressure too, no question about it, but the sheer size gives them more degrees of freedom, uh, more capacity to adapt than the smaller systems do. I'm thinking of Vermont or New Hampshire or um, uh, even Montana perhaps, but, but definitely uh, Alaska. So that, that adds pressure uh, you know, to, uh, to the situation. That's a great point. <clears throat> Can you dive a little bit more into then with three campuses and at that point you had three accreditations, is that right? Yeah, right. So do you, how much of the accreditation factor do you have to weigh in the, the fund distribution even though it's far less than what you need? How do you balance that all the way out? Well, it's a great uh, question. Accreditation wasn't so much a consideration in allocation of funds. Uh, we, um, to a great extent, allocated the reductions based on a formula. Uh, and we just took the percentage of general funds you know, that each unit had and took pro rata reductions. But what we frequently, actually most of those years, Karen, what we did, including this past year, uh, is we reduced a little deeper to create an investment pool because we did want to invest in K-12 outreach. We did want to invest in recruitment of retention initiatives into research. I mean, our return on research is huge. Um, you know, six, six outside dollars for each $1 we put in. Very, very important. So we weren't just trying to figure out how to shrink. We were uh, trying to also to try to grow at the same time. Right. Uh, so we used uh, a formulaic approach to allocate the reductions, but we did go deeper. And then we would basically compete for strategic investments that were tied to meeting state goals. And those goals included 
attainment um, and uh, economic development and research, uh, cost effectiveness, those sorts of things. Um, and accreditation really came up as an issue, not so much in budget allocation, but when we were looking at restructuring to try to figure out how we could reduce costs. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of uh, redundant academic units across the system. Uh, and so the question is, how could we reduce those? So instead of 19 colleges and schools, School of Education, College of Arts and Science, et cetera, we could have gone to nine. Uh, and had essentially the Alaska College of Engineering, the Alaska College of Education, the Alaska College of fill in the blank, as opposed to the UAF, UAS, or UAA. Right. Uh, so that, and accreditation definitely bumped into uh, to that, uh, that option. And then there were issues too of, of where decisions get made. Uh, and I think the assumption with accreditation, the big assumption is the decisions are made at the institutional level. Institutions are what's accredited, not systems. And yet, uh, in, in certain systems like Alaska's, the big decisions are made at the system level and by the Board of Regents, not at the institutional level. So that's an unresolved tension uh, in my view. And, uh, and I know there are other system heads all across the country who are very concerned about that tension. Uh, and the constraints that regional accreditation sometimes uh, puts on systems abilities to deal with issues like this. Uh, we were in close touch with folks in Maine. Uh, you know, their, their system is moving to a single accreditation, I think largely to try to reduce cost and increase the seamlessness of the student experience. Uh, Connecticut uh, State College and University Systems looking at it, I think, uh, and there may be others too uh, across the country. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you is, is I'm sensing in my reading around the country that systems are under great stress for different yes. reasons, but it all comes down to finances, declining number of students, uh, fixed costs going up. And so I was wondering, is there anything besides the, the investment fund, which I really like mm -hmm. uh, the idea, is there any other strategies that you might suggest to other systems who are looking at cuts like this? Well, certainly the, Consolidating administrative systems, lots of people have done that. You know, let's let's uh, put together the back room. Uh, that makes a, a lot of sense. There are a lot of risks, of course, to all of these things, and and the greater distance between the campuses, the more risk there is. The smaller the system, the more risk there uh, there is. Uh, I think there's a lot of really good thinking right now uh, being put into this by leaders of the National Association of System Heads, or NASH. Uh, and that, uh, that group, and in fact, I'm, still, I'm associated with them, we are doing a lot of serious thinking about the role of systems in the future. So it's not just these fiscal factors, uh, it's technological factors, but it's also the, the impact of COVID, uh, which is a serious, serious game changer. And then another is the very much unresolved problem of, uh, of uh, racial equity and, and racism across the country. And you know, those and COVID and, and that um, inequity issue, uh, social justice issue, they're not separate from each other. As we know, as we read about the differential impacts of COVID, uh, it's just exacerbating uh, those historic uh, structural uh, problems. And so system heads now are doing a lot of thinking 
uh, about the, uh, the challenges, but also the role that only systems can play uh, in addressing some of these challenges. Um, often institutions have, I mean, they have certain abilities, no question about it. Uh, they're on the ground, they can, they can do things very effectively that systems can't do. Uh, but there are also some synergistic effects of systems uh, that uh, enable and support institutions as they try to deal with issues uh, on the ground. So it's a very good question, Karen, and there's a lot of good work that's going into that right now. In fact, the call I had just before our call this morning was uh, with the National Center for Higher Education Management Systems, and uh, we are working together to try to figure this out. It's a great question, it really is, because I, I, I can see it being replicated multiple times across the country. Yeah, now, well, I, my, my, my friend at NCHEMS has, a, has a, uh, a really great line, and that is, if you've seen one system, you've seen one system. <laughs> <laughs> so even though there are dozens of them across the country yeah. because cultural factors, historical factors, geographic, financial, yeah. political, yeah. All, uh, all play into it. So it's not the kind of, Thing. You can just say, oh, California's got X or Pennsylvania's got something. We can just apply that here. It really doesn't uh, work that way. Uh, but there are certainly things we can learn from each other. And that's exactly the, one of the great purposes of NASH uh, is to, to spread out uh, best practices and successes across, uh, across the country. That's great. In Pennsylvania, we actually have two systems. We have PASHI, and then we have the Pennsylvania State University system of 24 Commonwealth campuses. Mm -hmm. and prior to teaching, I was an athletic director at one of those Commonwealth campuses and learned how the philosophy of one university geographically dispersed was their mantra and how we shared systems of you know, HR, common job postings, financial structures, admission structures. So there were some cost savings there. And so what I'm trying to do is use that understanding of how the PASHI, which is the state university system, which is schools like Shippensburg and Westchester and Kutztown and East Stroudsburg, mm -hmm. that system is under great stress right now because there's simply no money in the state budget. Right. So oftentimes I'm asked, are, are there similarities between the two? And I'm not sure that I do see any similarities. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um. I think there are some real positives of a system like that because I, as I understand that system and you come from it, so you would know, um, not the PASHI system, but the Penn State system actually is, is a single accreditation. Yes, that's uh, right. It doesn't have N number of accreditations as opposed to the PASHI system where they're all in. And, and so you end up with, and this was our experience at Alaska, I suspect it's the case uh, in the PASHI system as well, you end up with a structure, organizational structure at each of those individually accredited institutions that is probably larger than it needs to be simply to maintain the accreditation. Uh, and you know, when we looked at our administrative structure and costs in the University of Alaska system, we found that the system office, which was of course in the middle of the target when everybody was trying to cut, was smaller than comparable systems budgetarily only three and a half percent of the total budget. But the big administrative, uh, the amount of administration that was above peers was at the universities themselves. Huh. Um, so, but then you get into employment issues, right? Uh, 
the economic impact of employment in those communities. So then you get politicians and chambers of commerce um, excited about it. So it's very, very challenging to, to manage these declines uh, in ways that are not really controversial and, uh, uh, and painful, uh, there's no question. And so uh, folks, uh, and there's, in many of these cases, there is no win, uh, I don't think. Yeah, so. yeah. That's exactly where Pennsylvania is right now, because so many of the campuses are rural and their yeah. populations in their counties or areas are just not growing. Yeah. So well, one thought here is, you know, how does, does COVID teach us anything? Um, one thing it teaches us is that online education, while not perfect, is something that we can do. So do some of those smaller locations uh, become learning centers? Uh, do they become places uh, for K-12 outreach? Uh, do they uh, become more facilitators of content that is uh, produced, uh, you know, a little more centrally? You know, so you know, maybe it doesn't apply, but you know, the Western Governors University, for example, has over 90,000 students now uh, and they're booming. And uh, they, competency-based online, you know, they're, they're really being innovative and, and successful and, uh, and students are voting with their feet uh, or their, their clicks uh, to, uh, to enroll there. And so, I think we have to think about opportunities as well as we think about the challenges here. So shifting gears just a little bit, I know system heads uh, and offices don't have a lot to do with athletics. And if, I, if I'm correct, you have three different kinds of athletic programs in the Alaska system, right? You have uh, uh, programs on three different campuses. Is that actually that two, Karen? Two, okay. Yeah. Are they so, both division one? Uh, they're division one for hockey. Okay. Uh, and then I don't believe the division construct applies to Nordic skiing, cross country, rifle, some things like that. Um, and we do have those kinds of teams, but, but generally speaking in terms of volleyball, basketball, uh, division two. So that's, I think our primary classification and then uh, the hockey on top of that. And so that's been a, you know, they, provide tremendous values in terms of leadership development for the student athletes, uh, a point of pride, certainly for the institutions and the community, a link between the community and the, uh, and the campuses. Uh, they are, however, very, very expensive, uh, primarily because of the distance uh, and travel costs, uh, right? So we participate in the cost of bringing teams up to Alaska to play. Uh, our our teams, and so that's been a, a big challenge. So uh, we've looked hard at, um, at least when I was there, and they're looking at it still hard at how to trim the program so that they still meet the NCAA requirement to have at least ten teams, uh, and at each one of the universities, we explored combining, you know, them, uh, but felt uh, let's go ahead and keep the two separate, and then because rivalries are good. Uh, and then try to encourage philanthropy and more private support for the teams. Uh, several, over the last several years, that has worked marginally well. Uh, and more recently, in light of current budget reductions, uh, the University of Alaska Anchorage has announced um, the, its intent to uh, reduce its program, so uh, get rid of hockey, uh, men's hockey, and uh, women's gymnastics. And I believe there was one other sport they were thinking about reducing. 
but the, the compromise here was that if the uh, community steps up and provides the philanthropic support, uh, then there's the possibility that those sports could be continued. Do you have do you have the same kind of pressures that the other uh, some of the other Division One and Two programs had faced regarding uh, Title IX and trying to keep a gender equity balance on your campus? Are you a split 50-50 in terms of male female students? Yeah, we are. So okay. we're compliant in terms of that Title IX requirement. Um, so that's uh, and in fact, sort of moving over to the the Title IX challenges of the last number of years, you know, prompted by the. Obama administration's response to the scourge of sexual assault on campuses in the Dear Colleague letter of, of 2011. Actually, our athletics teams have been models of, uh, of leadership, I think, and uh, leading among students, uh, hockey teams, for example, you know, really getting the training right away and then getting out there and uh, encouraging other students to get the training. So I frankly take my hat off to our student athletes uh, for their leadership uh, in that particular area. So, um, yeah, I don't think that has, uh, the, you know, their academics have been very strong uh, as well. Yeah. So actually, I, leadership in our athletics programs has been excellent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it's always one of those things where when you're looking to cut, cut places, it's oftentimes easy to say, well, <clears throat> we don't need to travel and play that game, or we don't need to invite that school here, but that impacts the competitive equity that you're trying to create amongst all of your teams to have the chance to play at the highest level you can. Yeah, uh, very, very true. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, Jim, I can't thank you enough for this great conversation about the systems. Sure. I think it's a really important conversation as we look at higher ed today, as it evolves. I think you're absolutely right that COVID-19 has been a disruptive event for all of higher education and will continue to disrupt, to disrupt us even when we get a vaccine, because I think we won't go backwards. Well, I think you're right, Karen. I, I, I agree with you. It is disruptive. I guess I'd also suggest that it, it is a magnifier or an amplifier as well. And that way, by using those terms, um, some of the negative aspects of, of what's happening, what problems that we haven't resolved, challenges that we haven't solved yet, are made worse by it. So hence your disruptive term. But there are also some things I think that are positive uh, about it uh, that are uh, that have become more clear uh, here. Uh, the importance of technology in enabling students to study on their terms, yeah. on their time, uh, in ways they can. Uh, at the same time, though, the challenges are huge. Uh, students without the technological capabilities without the connectivity with jobs, et cetera. Those are tough, tough challenges. And, and I guess maybe I, I'm, I'm, uh, I think a lot about different kinds of challenges. And I think there, and this is really based on Ron Heifetz's work out of Harvard, the idea of technical problems or technical challenges versus adaptive challenges. And the technical ones can be solved with spreadsheets and PowerPoints and uh, policies and rules and regulations. The adaptive challenges are much harder uh, to, to solve. They can be managed, they can be approved upon directionally, uh, but they can't be fixed uh, by Tuesday of next week. They're the things that we need to really commit ourselves to long-term uh, and, uh, uh, and 
so one of the things that I'm really thinking about is that long term. And I mentioned the group work that the National Association of System Heads is doing is what about 2030? What about 2040? What is the long term here? And how do we begin to create that future uh, now? How do we envision it? And then what are the uh, policy implications? What are the uh, changes, initiatives, investments, uh, ways of thinking that need to change uh, so that we can actually realize that uh, very positive and important future of, of, uh, of state university systems in America. Absolutely. Great. Jim, thanks again for your time. I appreciate right. it. Yeah, it's great, Karen, and good luck. Have fun. Thank you.